The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they need justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the Crime Scene. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you today. Now, usually we talk to you about cases of true crime and things that are grievous and heinous. And uh, we're going to talk about something a little bit different today, though. We're going to talk about the psychology and the thought process behind the obsession of true crime, specifically with women. We have a great guest today, uh, Rachel Monroe. Her new book is Savage Appetites for True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. We're going to talk about why women seem to gravitate towards this subject. Uh, Rachel is a free rent lance writer and volunteer fighter fire living in Marfa, Texas. She was a 2016 finalist for a Livingston Award for Young Journalists and was named one of the queens of nonfiction by New York magazine in 2016. Her essay about murder fandom and adolescence outside the Manson Pinkberry, originally published in The Believer, is anthologized in the Best American Travel Writing of 2018, and she regularly writes for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Esquire, New York Magazine, Texas Monthly, The Guardian, and others. And we're so glad to have Rachel with us today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Why did you decide to take it from this direction. Why did you think this was such an important issue to report on and to to put in a book? Honestly, it started out with my own curiosity about myself. Um, I tend to think of myself as a pretty friendly, nice person, and yet I really craved these very dark stories. Um, And I didn't quite understand the hold that they had over my mind. And at the same time, I noticed that it certainly like wasn't just me, that there were a lot of people, particularly women, who found these stories oddly soothing in a way. You you hear a lot of people talking about coming home from work after a hard day and just wanting to turn on Dateline or some show that's going to talk about terrible things that have happened. And so um, that was like a curious disconnect there. I, I didn't, it didn't quite make sense to me. Um, and so, and, and I was looking around and it, and if you kind of Google around on the internet and say, you know, why, why do women love true crime? There's a little bit more out there now than when I first started writing the book, but there weren't a lot of satisfying, thoughtful explanations on the internet. So I figured, uh, I couldn't find anybody else who had written a book about this. So, uh, I guess then I decided that that might have to be my job. Well, I I think it's a great idea. And I was sharing with you off air. I just last week got an email from a young woman who is a college student, and she's doing uh, a project and a paper on why women seem to be drawn to this topic. So I didn't really know what to say because she asked me my opinion, seeing that I host this show. And I just threw this out there, and I want to get your thought on it. I mean, I, I think it's probably accurate to say that women tend to be more the victim of violent crime, unfortunately, throughout history? That's actually not, that's actually, well, violent crime, it's pretty much evenly split. Most murder, the vast majority of murder victims are men. Okay. Okay. Well, then that's right there. That's a misnomer. That's an important reason to get out. My, my take on it was maybe this is a way to cope with that reality, but you're telling me it's not a reality. Uh, yeah, isn't that interesting? I think it's really like that surprises a lot of people. And that's not if you're just kind of moving through the world, that's not at all what you would expect, um, because there are so 
many stories where it kind of inundated with stories about women being victimized. And actually, if you look at the statistics in the United States, the percentage of murders that are committed by men against uh, like a male perpetrator and a female victim, that's only 25% of murders. But the murder stories that are out there in the world, that's kind of what we're used to reading, listening to on podcasts watching on TV. So I think, you know, that anxiety is in some ways real, partly because we're growing up in a culture that that keeps us in those stories. That's interesting. So my thesis, my original thesis, that women do is way because they are more likely to be the victims, obviously wrong, according to the data, but maybe because the perception that they're, uh, I'll ask you that then. Do you think that part of the reason women gravitate to this is that they have been basically taught, like I guess I've been taught as well, this misnomer about the violent crime statistics? They assume they're more likely to be a victim, so they use true crime as a coping mechanism subconsciously somehow? Yeah, I think that's certainly a part of it. And, you know, I don't want to dismiss the idea that women in our culture, in our world, feel vulnerable. Like there are a lot of different ways to feel vulnerable or at risk that are, you know, don't maybe rise to the level of violent crime. There's like a lot of, there's a lot of harassment and predatory behavior that exists out there in the world that's not murder and that women are are certainly deal with in their daily life or, or, you know, bad relationships, emotional abuse, things like that. And so I do think that true crime I mean, I think as humans, we understand our experience through stories, through narrative. And that's exactly what happens with true crime. Through reading about what happened to other people, we can kind of maybe understand our own experience, get some perspective on it, uh, learn a little bit more in a way that we wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to, or we wouldn't necessarily have that perspective if we were just thinking about our own lives. I think that's definitely part of it. And I do want to talk about the book and how you've broken it down and so forth. But first, I wanted to mention this. This is this is one podcast that I do. I've actually been doing it since 2011, but it, before Serial and the the big uh, the big crush. But I, I think since I take a little more, I hopefully intellectual tack on it. It's not nearly as popular because we're not blood and guts here. I mean, we talk <laughs> about things, but we're not like he took his blade and ran it across the throat. You know that stuff. But so so it, it doesn't get the download numbers that some of those shows get. But the point is, is that what I mainly earn my living doing are shows that folks on the supernatural and I have a ghost story uh, show that is very popular much more popular than this show and to me there's an interesting parallel in the sense that I think I I, I hate to say it but I, I think that true crime is really for a lot of people entertainment they like to be scared they they like to hear the gory details they like to hear how the 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 murder uh, the murderer basically killed somebody in a very minute detail. There's people who really like that. Do you agree with that? And and if so, why? Whether it's women, whether it's men, whoever it is. Uh, what do you think about that? You know, I think that's really totally true. And I think it's refreshing to hear you say that because like you said, it's it's sort of an uncomfortable truth and it's something that people often try to deny or talk around or, um, you know, you see a lot of the theories out there or people will say, oh, no, women love true crime or interested in true crime because they want to avoid uh, being victims of serial killers. And while I believe that maybe that's a part of it, I think we also can't deny that there is some element of, I don't know if it's thrill, um, sensationalism, some sort of vicarious 
excitement or something that does happen with these stories. And, and I don't think that that is, I think it's, that's unnerving and it's troubling, but it's not necessarily terrible. I mean, as, as humans, we like to know stories about the extreme edges of our experience and the, the dark corners of human psychology and, and all of that. And so I think that we have to, we're really going to talk about true crime, honestly, we have to admit that there is an entertainment aspect to it. I mean, it wouldn't be nearly as popular if that weren't the case. And so I think that, and rather than kind of trying to deny that or excuse it or pretend that that's not part of what's going on, we just need to acknowledge it. And, and I think there certainly is a discomfort, particularly with, women in admitting that because women aren't supposed to, we have these ideas that like, you know, women are supposed to be sweet. They're supposed to be caregivers. There isn't, there isn't supposed to have, we aren't supposed to have this, this darkness in us, but you know, like women are people too. And, and people uh, from the very beginning of, of mass media have um, been drawn to these stories of, of crime, of murder, of death, of, the bad things that people do to each other. And so, of course, women are are interested in those things. And it's interesting, I I think that, you know, I can't speak to women because I'm not a woman. So I, I, I feel sometimes very unqualified to do that. But I can say, I think even for men, when you listen to a true crime story, it depends on the day of the week or whatever, you might think, okay, well, what would it be like horribly enough to be the victim. Or I think we've all gotten very angry in life and thought, well, could I kill someone? And of course, I mean, I, I think that the vast majority of people are not capable of the, the, the Ted Bundys of the world, the Jeffrey Dahmers and things. But I do think it runs through people's mind, putting themselves in the place. Could they be that victim if they, you know, went down the wrong alley? Or could they, God forbid, be the killer. I mean, I think that sometimes uh, secretly people wonder that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that one of the the pleasures of the genre is, and, and I'm kind of like you, I'm not, I, I don't get very much of anything out of the, the kind of terrible play-by-play and the blood and the guts and all that. But for me, it is that, that, that sort of psychological suspense or that, that um, feeling of uh, empathy. Somebody, somebody who I talked to for my book, she called um, true crime like an empathy roller coaster. And I thought that was such a good description because you do end up feeling like relating to people in such extreme states, whether they are the person who is a victim of a crime or sometimes somebody, yeah, who, who perpetrated a crime. Sometimes you hear like well, they had such terrible childhoods and stuff growing up, you know, these crimes don't come out of nowhere and, and then you feel bad for them at the same time. You um, realize the monstrousness of what they've done. And uh, there's just like a lot of human emotion there. And I think that that's something that, that we're drawn to. If, we're, if you're the kind of person who sort of wants to understand how you came to be, how you are and, and how other people are the way that they are, um, I think true crime can be one way of thinking about those things. And another thing that I think has been uh, important for men and women with uh, the advent of uh, the popularity of true crime, and I think true crime's always been popular, and I want to ask you about that, whether it really is more popular now or not, but I think with personal media devices, a lot of times in, in solitude, whether it's podcasts, you know, we have the earbuds in, or if we're driving, for example, we're in our car usually by ourselves, 
or on public transit or whatever. And then with e-readers, with a Kindle, you know, nobody knows what, and I think that's also been a boon for the romance category. You know, you can read anything and nobody really knows it unless they're looking over your shoulder. Um, Do you think that has played a role in this kind of boom of uh, true crime interest? That's so interesting. I haven't thought about it like that, but I bet you're totally right. But, you know, the other thing that has seemed interesting to me is how, like, when I feel, when I started being really interested in true crime, it felt like a little bit taboo. You know, I know I agree, like you said, these these stories have been wildly popular for a long time, but it, it felt like if I outed myself as somebody who was interested in true crime, that would maybe say something about me that, that I didn't necessarily want the world to know. Like I, there's something creepy about me, but now it really is um, a much more mainstream interest for my book. I went to uh, CrimeCon, which is this convention that is put on by the oxygen TV network, which is a, a true crime, all true crime programming now that, that targets, millennial women. And I was really interested to see there was like a subset of people at CrimeCon who had, you know, just looking at the, their looks, they, they seemed kind of alternative. They had a kind of goth thing going on, maybe dark eye makeup, wearing all black. But there were a lot of people there. There, there were like a lot of people who looked like normal moms or moms and daughters. Like there were a lot of like family families there and uh it just it was it noticeable to me that that this interest that i think maybe once would have marked you as alternative in some way has really become extremely mainstream now your book savage appetites you broke it down i believe into four archetypes can you tell us what they are and why you chose to go about it that way yeah so the book is split into the story of uh four different women who each became fascinated with and, and entwined by a crime that didn't happen to her. And the four archetypes that I write about are the detective, the victim, the defender, and the killer. And that was just because um, I felt like uh, sometimes people talk about true crime or people who become interested in true crime uh, as if it's all one thing. And it seemed like in my experience, there, it was very different to, to read a story and, like you said, to di- identify with the killer versus identifying with seeing yourself reflected in the detective, feeling like uh, that was who you wanted to be. So by splitting the book into those four sections, it seemed like a good way to, to give a sense of some of the, the breadth um, and the many different ways that this genre can function for people. Now... Uh, one thing that has amazed me are our armchair detectives. I mean, we've heard these cases of lately, I think with the uh, Golden State Killer, there was um, DNA folks and, and they did this uh, research on the side and the, the one woman, and I forgive me, I can't remember her name, almost developed this new technique and uh, they they tracked down the Golden State Killer, these, arm uh, quote, armchair detectives, which, I you know, obviously in a case like that, very helpful. I could think other times it might be not so helpful. Detective, you talk about the detective. Is that a common thing that we see that uh, a woman will find one of these things and, and say, I'm going to find the killer, I'm going to figure this out? You definitely see online there are, uh, then this is another way that technology has, has enabled these communities to come together. There are these message boards where people talk about cold cases um, or people go on Reddit and, and kind of discuss clues and theories there. And those communities do tend to be 
is certainly not all women at, uh, by any measure, but but majority women. And uh, yeah, it's a really interesting phenomenon. And and you see people kind of uh, there are a lot of even if you like go back to the to the Victorian era and the detective novels there. There's a there's sort of a history of women as being these um, non-professional amateur sleuths who uh, in some ways have an advantage because they're overlooked. And so they're sort of sitting there quietly observing things that uh, nobody else notices, picking up on social cues. And, and that's what allows them to break the case. And I think that that is, that is at least the fantasy of the armchair detective that somehow from looking at Facebook and and searching, doing some Google searches that, that you'll find the clue that the police haven't. And um, I don't know how often that gets borne out, but I do think that they, those armchair detectives in a way, in some ways their, their best benefit is that they bring attention to cold cases. They don't, they don't let them go, maybe more than even just solving them necessarily. Well, one of the things that I do worry about with online communities, so for example, for this show, I've thought about starting a Facebook group. On my other shows, I have a successful Facebook group with 19,000 members who talk about their various stories of the supernatural. And I thought about doing something similar for this show because from a marketing perspective, it's great and community building, it's great. But my fear was, and I'm sure you've seen this, is because people start discussing theories of various cases. And let's say there are three prime suspects, uh, Bill, Steve, and Fred. And let's say uh, Steve really did it. Well, if, if people are online saying, well, I think it's Bill because of this, and I think it's Fred because of this. I mean, you get into a lot of issues with uh, uh, libel and slander and, uh, and not only that, just uh, morally banting these theories around like you're talking about fictional characters and these are real people and maybe bill and fred are you know perfectly innocent and just a lot of circumstantial evidence came up and that makes it look like they could be the person i mean we see this with very old cases like jack the ripper and i don't think anybody thinks much of it because everybody involved is long dead and their immediate relatives are long dead but we're talking about a lot of cases here where you know people are still very much alive and and i think that's a real concern about the true crime genre definitely and i really respect your your decision to think about it that way because i think too often people people don't take that pause of a moment to, to think about what are the consequences might be. And you're right. These are, these are real people. And that's the funny thing about the internet. It, it enables us in some ways encourages us to forget that. Right. And to think that people that we're talking about somehow aren't real or are fictional characters. And I, I thought about it a lot because in my book, I, I write some about the case of the West Memphis three, which was terrible murders of young boys in the 1990s. And that case inspired one of the very first, possibly the very first website back in the 90s that, that was dedicated to a case. And so it's like the, in some ways, a prototype of what we see happening online where people uh, are floating those theories like that, like you're talking about. And, and um, in some ways, it was like this fantastic resource. You had these people coming together, kind of crowdsourcing an investigation, essentially, because they believed that the three young men who had been convicted had been wrongfully convicted. 
which seems to be true as, as it all turns out. But then on the other side of that, it's just like you said, like the three, the three teenagers who had been wrongfully convicted had been, it seems like they were, they were convicted largely because they were like the local weirdos in this town. You know, they, they wore black and they listened to Metallica and that was, that was essentially the evidence against them. But then you have these people on the, on the website speculating about who they think really did it. And, and a lot of them ended up picking somebody who uh, gave them the heebie-jeebies, which was one of the murdered boy's fathers who was uh, kind of a bombastic uh, redneck preacher guy. And it turns out he didn't do it either. But all of these, for years, you had people speculating about him digging into his past, tracking his every move, spreading this idea online that he had killed his own child. And, and to me, that's a really strong illustration of the, the danger of this kind of idle speculation. You know, the police don't release the names of people um, unless they are a suspect, right? For good reason. There's this layer of accountability and, and even just being named a person of interest in a case is, can really shake a person's life up. But online, there isn't any of that accountability. And so you had, you had people, there was a real irony there is that you had people who um, were drawn to this case because they were so horrified that these kind of misfit goth teenagers had been accused of a crime just because they didn't fit in. And then they, in some cases, turned around and did the exact same thing, found somebody who they found strange and whose behavior didn't make sense to them and, and essentially, with, with little evidence, assumed that, that he was the culprit. And so you see, it's so easy to do that. I think people really desire closure, desire an answer. And so, um, and it's easy to kind of speculate online, but that online speculation can have real consequences. It's interesting. Some of the greatest injustices in the world are done in the name of justice. You talk about the victim. What is the victim in the context of this book? Well, I focused on in that section, the uh, the murder of Sharon Tate by the Manson family, uh, who obviously killed more people than just Sharon Tate. But um, I was that is a story that has been covered so often and and has been such a focus of pop culture fascination for so long. And but what I was more interested in was the aftermath of those crimes um, and how Sharon Tate became this famous symbolic victim um, because her mother became a big um, player in the, and, and in some ways like a, a founding force of the victims' rights movement, what we now know as the victims' rights movement. So in that section, I just wanted to think about the fame that sometimes comes to people who become, uh, who, are, who are murdered. Like Sharon Tate in some ways was much more famous in death than she was in life and attracted a lot of attention. And so what do we, the, the kind of uses and abuses um, that we make of people who are famously the victims of violent crime, there's a, there's a way in which people can sometimes feel really connected to these famous victims, but also sometimes a, a sense of entitlement. I write about a woman named, well, she called herself Rosie Tate Polanski, who um, became convinced that she was, at first that she was a reincarnation of Sharon Tate, and then later that, that she was Sharon Tate's baby. And just the way that, that these famous crimes can kind of latch into people's brains and cause them to feel over-identified with, with crimes that didn't happen to them. And then the defender, and I can picture this one if you think about it, it's one of these things where if you take a look at it, it's... Um, 
a situation where someone hears about a crime and they say, well, that person didn't do it and I'm going to stick up for them and I'm going to try to help defend them. Is that the idea behind this chapter? Yeah, and and I think that in a lot of cases, I, uh, as I write about, um, women can be drawn to underdogs. I think that's a persistent theme that we see in a lot of people's lives. Um, of course, not every woman, but um, that's, that's something that you see. I think maybe women who have had their own experiences with feeling not listened to, not believed, marginalized in some way can, in some cases, hear about somebody else who's gone through that, who, who has been wrongfully convicted or there's been some sort of miscarriage of justice and they, they relate to it in a way. And, and I think there can also often sometimes be like a strong desire to, to fix things, to take a problem and, and try to fix it or be helpful. And so in that section, that's the section in which I write about the, the West Memphis Three and uh, this woman, Lori Davis, who saw a documentary about the West Memphis Three and the, the convictions of these three teenagers, and which she saw as, as like terrible, wrongful convictions. And so she began writing to one of the, the men on death row, Damien Eccles, and they essentially fell in love over over correspondence through writing letters to each other. And and she dedicated her life to getting him and, and the other two convicted men out of prison. Um, she she gave up her job in New York and moved to Arkansas to be close to the prison so she could see him. They got married at their wedding was the first time that they had ever kissed. And the, the wedding was in a prison. And then, you know, they had their hour together and then uh they had to be he had to be whisked back to death row so uh it really she she ended up having to dedicate her her life to trying to um fight that case because she a little ways through she realized that uh it was very unlikely that the justice system was going to go back and say you know oops we made a mistake so a lot of it ended up being uh down to her and uh, it strikes me, and I'm not saying that, you know, there are cases where there's been a cause celeb and it's uh, helped with uh, exoneration and um, there have been these innocence projects which are doing good work to, to free people who have been wrongfully convicted. But it strikes me in general that there's a should be a happy medium uh, with this. And it seems like to me, like most things, you have people who take it to the extreme. I guess sometimes there's a good outcome and sometimes there's a there's a bad outcome. For example, you could take somebody who loved to collect, I don't know, uh, bottle caps. And, you know, they, the one person may collect bottle caps and they may make a whole life out of it in a business and have the Museum of Bottle Caps and go and speak at these bottle cap conferences and, and, and it'll be a great thing. The other person might collect so many bottle caps that they become a hoarder and and they're trapped in their own room uh, with with no space to live because they've got too many bottle caps. Is it is it kind of like that? Is that kind of what you see with this? Yeah, yeah, it's I mean it's interesting, right? Because I guess I'm I tend to be I I love I find these stories of people who are really devoted and obsessive and fanatical really fascinating because that's not particularly my personality. Um, I'm, I'm very, you know, like, well, but on the other hand, you know, I, I, I can't imagine being that 
completely devoted to an idea um, or a cause for my whole life. And, and I think it's partially my fear of exactly that. The, the second bottle cap case of something that, that takes over your life and totally consumes it. But at the same time, I think those, those people, those, those fanatics, those, those people who can't let something go in some ways are such instigators of great change. And so that was why Lori Davis was really fascinating to me because on one level, I could not imagine it was such a foreign idea to me to think about what it would be like to, to be married to somebody who you couldn't touch, who you couldn't be around and who is locked up in prison um, and have that be the focus of your life. I mean, that seemed so, it almost seemed really like self-denying in a way that made me sad. But then when I met her, she's a person who's just so full of life and kindness. And I really admired the fact that she was able to do something that I could have never done, which was just like commit herself to this fight for justice, even at the expense of herself. There were certainly times in her life when, when she was depressed, when she lost friends, when, when her life kind of shrank and because her whole life was about fighting to get this man out of prison. And, and I found that both kind of terrifying and inspiring at the same time. And then you talk about the killer. In more context, do you talk about the killer? So the, the killer in my book is, is not actually a killer, but uh, she kind of dreamed of being a killer. Her name is Lindsay Suvanarath, and, and she was a young woman who lived in suburban Chicago. And um, she was a pretty depressed and, and alienated young woman who was, was living at home, had very few friends in real life, spent most of her, her life online, and she became drawn into this online world where people talk about uh, Columbine, the school shooting and, and the Columbine killers. And through this fandom, essentially, she met a young man with similar interests and uh, together they ended up planning a mass shooting of their own inspired by Columbine. So it, it is like anything else to some extent. People can have a healthy relationship to this material, and then people can go in that horrible, horrible direction you just uh, described. It just, it depends, right? Yeah, definitely. And it depends on, on their own mental health. I mean, I think that these, that was something that I really ended up feeling by the end of this, the end of writing this book, that, that we often use these stories as, um, as proxies to, to work out our own questions about life to talk about our own anger or our anxieties, as you were saying earlier. And so if, if we're in a good place, then maybe these stories can be helpful or, or interesting or entertainment. But if, if we're in a bad place for other things, then these stories, I think, really can work darkly on people's minds. And that, that seemed to be the case with Lindsay and James. I mean, they both had plenty of underlying issues. I don't think it's certainly not fair to say that they were they were just like perfectly sunny, healthy young people who stumbled on the wrong website. That's not it at all. They were drawn to these stories in part because they were looking for some explanation of what was wrong with their own lives. And um, and these stories presented a narrative. And, and what was really troubling about working on that section, too, is that how they came to see that committing a mass shooting was for them a way to be famous or to, to matter, to get attention. And, and in a way they're, they're not wrong, you know, it's, and that's, that's a lot, that's an alarming thing about our culture is that we do in some ways pay a lot of attention 
two killers, two people who have enacted spectacular violence. So we're always trying to, you know, like, why did he do it? What was her childhood like? Asking those questions over and over again. And so for these alienated young people, it seemed like this was the only way to get people to listen to them. Um, and that, and that was really troubling that they were, they were less interested in the actual violence and the um, hurting people that that was sort of secondary for them. What they really wanted was the, the fame and the attention and to be on TV. You know, that is such a sticky wicket and a difficult issue because I firmly believe that let's say that and if everything would remain the same, but these instances of these mass shootings weren't reported on, I think we would see a sharp decrease. That doesn't mean that it would stop, but I think we'd see a sharp from the crimes. Let's say for some reason, and and, and this is impossible for reasons I'll state state in a moment, but let's just say for some reason the media said, we're not going to cover these stories. I bet you that mass shootings would go down by 50, 75 percent, even if the even if even if guns, uh, these military style guns, I know they're technically not military, but you know what I'm talking about, the AK-47s, AAR-15s, even if they stay available, I think that the media not covering it would sharply decrease it. However, the role of the media and of journalists is to tell people things they need to know. And if people are being shot, <laughs> the public needs to know. So how do you balance that? I know I have noticed in the last uh, few mass shootings, they've really tried to downplay the name. They've not mentioned the name. There have not been a lot of photos. And I think that's a very intentional strategy to try to discourage these. And, and I hope it works. But the thing is, is that, I mean, how it's such a 21st century problem. How do you balance the public's need to know with the idea that basically media coverage is an accelerant for these. I don't know. Well, and I think, yeah, I think something that's really troubling too is, and I agree with you that I do think that the media made a mistake in uh, made probably many mistakes in the days and weeks after the Columbine shootings. They did what we now know is ex the exactly wrong way to uh, react, which is to, there was a, a lot of talk about the perpetrators, what they did, what they wore, what their weapons were, what their motives might have been. And, and that did, in a way, create um, a kind of outlaw mystique around them. I mean, there was like certainly understandable motivation. People wanted to know what happened, how it happened, how could something so terrible happen. But it, it did have that accidental impact of, of making those shooters um, cultural figures. But I think the problem that we have now is even if we could uh, some, in some way not report those names or, or not report those stories, the media now, the national media isn't necessarily who these people are performing for. If you think about the, the shooting at the Christchurch Mosque in New Zealand or the, the shooting out here near me in Texas in, in El Paso recently, um, or even Lindsay and James, they were performing not so much for the national media, but for their, their online subcultures. Right. And the thing is, those can't be controlled. Those are like uh, trying to herd cats. Yeah, exactly. And so even if the national media is not saying the name uh, for, on 4chan or on Tumblr, wherever these people kind of find these, these communities of hate, um, they will certainly still share the stories and, and share the name and, and talk about it as if it's, you know, a video game and then cheer on the body count and the, all the terrible things that we see. So, I mean, I'm sure your listeners will disagree, but one thing that was interesting for me was, uh, 
the the mass shooting that Lindsay and James planned was supposed to be in Canada. That's where he lived, and um, it didn't end up happening. But you can see that it if it had happened, it wouldn't have been like the mass shootings in the United States because they had such a hard time getting guns. He only had access to his father's two, like essentially single action uh, hunting rifles with like 16 bullets of birdshot. And so even if they had ended up executing this, which, which didn't happen, uh, you can just imagine that the very different levels of carnage in that can be committed in 40 seconds, as we've seen in, in the recent shootings in the U.S. Uh, with AR-15s versus uh, a single action hunting rifle with birdshot. So I don't know. I, I personally think that uh, guns, it's, it's impossible to, to talk about the problem without talking about guns. But that's my own personal opinion. I no, that's fine. And I typically don't get political here. And I, I tend to be pro the, the right to own guns. But I don't personally see why anybody needs an AR-15. I, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for that. <laughs> but I don't know. I live, in, I, live in, I live in Texas. I have friends with AR-15s. And I agree with you. And I think that and those my friends maybe increasingly are questioning it too so yeah and I, i'm kind of in a situation where everybody hates me because i i am for the right to own guns so <laughs> the gun control people hate me but i also don't see the need for ar-15 in some ways i think that i think you're actually like a mainstream american position and i think that <laughs> if you actually sat down and talked to a lot of people that's that's probably where a lot of people end up but um there are these kind of forces of polarization that that make us think that uh, you know push everybody to these extremes. Right. And, and why can't we have the discuss? And and and, I'm, and I don't get political, but I am going to say this: Why can't we have the discussion? Why does that make me a bad person? And why does it make you a bad person? And if somebody says ban them all, ban all guns, why does that make them a bad person? What if somebody says own all the guns? Why does that necessarily make them a bad person? Let's have the dis- as long as they're not using them in these horrible ways. Let's have the dis- discussion and, and stop the name calling and really kind of hash it out. But anyway, uh, I said way too much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to regret this, but I really appreciate your time today. It is fascinating. I think anybody who goes through something like this has a major project like this, maybe comes out a little differently or maybe learn something they didn't know. What was one of your huge takeaways from this project? Well, it was interesting to me to realize through the course of writing the book that um, that I tended to use these stories or be drawn to these stories um, at points during which my own life felt kind of chaotic or out of control. And I think that's the case for a lot of people when it when you feel vulnerable, maybe for other reasons, um, true crime stories have a lot of appeal at that moment because they they offer kind of a streamlined uh, narrative of of a good guy and a bad guy and and the problem that just that'll go away if you just capture the bad guy. And uh, that was just an interesting thing for me to realize how the way that I use these stories as a kind of coping mechanism in some ways to ignore the problems in my own life and 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 so that. For me, that's when it gets um, when I can when I realize that I'm using these stories as a kind of avoidance. Uh, that's that's when I notice, okay, that's a problem. I don't want to do that. And so, for me, that's an important thing to to be aware of. 
Well, it's one of those things, and I even struggled when I did this show. Am I capitalizing? And believe me, I'm a full-time podcaster. If I were trying to make my living on this show, I would not be a full-time podcaster. But (laughs) the point being, am I capitalizing on people's suffering and grief? You know, when I started this show, and I I still struggle with that. Is that something where, should I even be doing a show like this? Should I even be listening to other true crime podcasts or reading true crime books? But I, I I tend to think in life, and, and this goes back to that other thing that we were talking about earlier with the guns, everything in moderation is kind of kind of in general my, my, my thought. Do you think we're okay to listen to a true crime podcast or read a true crime book or watch a TV show if we, if we don't take it too far? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I think just like you said, this is a way for us to learn about humanity and about the state of humanity and about the, I mean, really important things in the world. like like the justice system and like abuse and all the various things that go on in the world. It's, it's important for us to know um, and to not paint an overly rosy picture of the world that we live in and to know what goes on. And I've had the experience, you know, as a reporter working on some of these stories that I've, I've often been surprised by how victims families often do want their stories out there, you know, in a respectful way that um, remembers that they're, that they're people at the heart of these stories. But I don't think that that silence and avoiding the idea that these things happen is is necessarily a smart or a safe move. And it's not necessarily what what victims want. It's not necessarily anything that serves victims. So I think, yeah, I think as long as like anything else, like just like you said, moderation, being a, a careful, conscious consumer, that's all we can ask for. Well, there you have it. The book is Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. Our guest has been Rachel Monroe. Rachel, where can people find the book? I know pretty much everywhere fine books are sold. And also plug into the rest of your work. Sure. Well, yeah, buy the book at your local independent bookstore or uh, online. And um, my website is rachel-monroe.com, or I'm also on Twitter probably way too much. Um, there at uh, Rachel Monroe. The book is Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. Our guest has been Rachel Monroe. Rachel, we appreciate you being on the show, I should say, and thank you for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. It's been great talking with you. Well, we enjoyed speaking with Rachel. Fascinating discussion. Indeed, I hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk to you next time on The Crime Scene. And as always, be careful out there. Bye-bye, everybody. (laughs) 